to first set the stage for us and uh, help you to see why this passage is germane. Uh, if you go back to the uh, Psalm 23, in Psalm 23, we were walking through that. We've gone through it most of last month, which says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I'm not going to be in need. And then there's two things that happened. Do you remember what they were? He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still water. So as I'm preparing to read the text, I want to be able to give this illustration. It's like God tells us, he makes us lie down. I'm not going to lay down in church. But I wanted to show this idea that what would it be like to be on the green pastures beside the stillness of the waters? What happens when you're there? You remember what the next verse says? After he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me by the still waters, he restores my soul. You see, when you're in this position where you're near the cross and you know that the Lord is the shepherd, you can see the crook. You can see the staff. You know, those are the things that comfort us. When you're there, your soul ought to be restored. How many of you have a peaceful soul? Or are you living in fear, anxiety, your anger, you're bitter, you have despair about the political elections, you don't even want to visit your neighbors, you're hoping that people won't talk to you. When you think about all these things, that's not of a person whose soul has been restored. Now, Psalm 23 doesn't end there, does it? If you look at the next verse, it says that he leads me in the path of righteousness. And that's the thing I want to preach on today, is that God is telling us, you're not free to sit here where your soul is restored and just stay here and be a fat little baby, as Amy Grant's song says. We are to be getting up, and we're supposed to go in the path of of righteousness. And now if I was to walk out of this building, I have a few paths to me. I could take down that path, I could take down this path, or I could go down that path, or maybe even the far one to the right and go out those doors, or maybe even the escape hatch over here. It leads outside. You see, there are many paths that God says are righteous, and he's going to lead you into the one that he's called you to do. Now that is the great setup for understanding What's going on with Titus? God is going to lead Titus into the path of righteousness for his namesake. Titus' soul has been restored. It's been renewed. He has been equipped. And when you look at this, you're going to find that he gets up from the couch and he's got a task to do. And we're going to find out what it is. So if you will look with me to the text in Titus chapter 3, I'll be looking at all of the verses there. So let us reverently attend to God's word. Remind them to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to be showing perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, that's 
That's Bible speak for addictions. We passed our days away with malice and envy. In other words, we wasted them. And we hated, hating, or hated by others and hating one another. But, verse 4, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by, by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is still trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and they're profitable for people, but avoid these things. Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels over the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When, and this is how he finishes, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, and he's talking here to Titus, when I send these two guys, one of these guys to you, Titus, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos, who is the preacher, on their way and see that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to ministry partnerships, oh, excuse me, uh, to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you might inspire us in the path of righteousness today, just as you did to this young man, Titus, many days ago. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, I talked about the path, that we're not free to sit on the couch anymore, that we need to get up and go. But many of us don't know which way to go. We don't know how to do things. In fact, if you look at the Bible passages, uh, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 tells us all about the Savior, but then he says, all we like sheep, we follow the right path, right? I know the verse is behind me. We all find our own way. In fact, the book of Proverbs, chapter 12, or 14, verse 12, in fact, there is a way that seems right to us. When we get up off our couch and we start engaging the world, we say, we're going to do what seems good in our eyes. But that path doesn't lead us back to the still waters. It leads us over the cliff. Now, when you think about this for a little bit more, you're going to understand that Psalm 23 never promised us a paved road. 
because there was going to be dangers. The valleys, the evils, the enemies, you can just read it. Yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, when you prepare the food, it's going to be in the presence of my enemies. And he says, your rod and staff, they're there, but they keep me from fearing the evil that I feel. When you go through your life, those of you that have lived a little bit longer than I, you can testify. This, is, this life is not a beach. It's not a piece of cake. It's not so easy as pie. It is a journey. It's the pilgrim's progress, which, by the way, men, there's a Bible study starting that you might want to be reading that or maybe we'll offer it a second time as well. We want to encourage people to go on the path that leads to righteousness, the path of righteousness. It's exactly what Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 6, where he said that you should seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, the path of righteousness. This is what a priority should be for Christians. And that righteous path is explained for us in Psalm 119 when he says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you want to know the righteous path for you, get into the Word of God. And that's exactly what the Word of God is doing in getting in to Titus. God's Word was specifically given to him so that he might stick on this path of righteousness. If you're following along with me, the three points of the sermon uh, all start with an F. The friendship that you see here is appreciated. Secondly, you're going to notice the frustrations along this path, and they're going to be addressed. And then thirdly, the formation that is applied. And that word formation is what they call in seminary, basically, it's piety. It's spiritual growth. So these three things I want to explain to you that you can see on the path of righteousness, the friendships, the frustrations, and the formation that is expected. Uh, when you start off with the friendships, this is a really great place to be. When you come to church, you normally want to come where your friends are. I mean, that's the same reason why you join any organization. It's the same way place you would go to the bar. Isn't that what the Cheers uh, commercial, you know, that TV show? You go to a place where everybody knows your name. You want to go there. You want to go to a place where you feel safe, where you're not being attacked, where you're not, being, uh, where you're not living in fear. You want to have this friendship. And, and the demonstration here, when we look at the friendship that's appreciated, you can see the gospel and the path of righteousness in their lives. You get a perspective when you look at Paul and Titus. That's the way it should be for all of us, to have some friendships like that. Secondly, we're going to end up seeing the frustrations that are addressed, and there's six of them in the text. We're going to highlight the last two or three that are in chapter three. And then finally, I want to be able to tell you that God says... You you don't stay there. I've restored your soul so you can get up and go, so that you can do all my holy will. What Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, after he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, you've been on the couch of, of grace. Then he says, for you are God's workmanship, his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus as a new work to do good works which God has before ordained or predestined that you should be doing. You see, that's the path that we need to be on. So let's walk through it. First is the friendship that you can see. When you look at this particular text, you're going to see that Paul valued Titus's company. He says, if you look at the text uh, there towards the end, I want to come and visit you. In Titus chapter 3, he says, I am here. I'm over here. I'm going to be at that place. I want you to come visit 
When you invite somebody to church, do you really want them to come? I mean, you think about it. What kind of a friendship is it if you're just saying, you have to be there. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. The whole beauty of this friendship is that these are two believers, two brothers in Christ. And their relationship is of the sort that they want to lift each other up. You can see what, what Paul wants. Paul wants to have time with his friend. Secondly, you're going to find that Paul values Titus's calling. If you go back to chapter 1, and you can see it there at the beginning, after he introduces this fella, and I'll read it for you in chapter 1, uh, verses 4 and 5, he says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. He really wants his son in the faith, his brother now in Christ, to have peace. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be worked up. Don't be sinking. Don't be drowning. He says, the friendship I have for you is I pray for the grace of God to be abundant in your life. I want you, I want you to flourish. But the interesting thing, Paul values Titus' calling, not just his time. And he says, I left you on that island, verse 5, that island of Crete, so that you can do what you're supposed to do. God's gifted you. God has called you. He has made you a little different from some of the others. And of all the people, God wants you, Titus, to to be there and to do this and to say what needs to be said and to stand up for what is right and to give clarity. He says, I want you to set things in order. You can see it. I want you to put what remained into order and getting the leadership set up, even in every town, as the church multiplies. Just like I told you before, I'm telling you again. Wow. This is so cool. The friendship that is valuing also the, the, the calling t- that you need to do this. And thirdly, he values the church. Paul knows that there are believers on that island. And Paul is not saying, ah, those people over there on that island, you know, the Cretes, you know, and you can fill in the blank. Do you think they're going to say nice things about those people? It's kind of like saying, oh, those people on the left coast, they're fruits and nuts, or, or they're those people that are in upper part of this, they're this, or those people down there, they're gun-toting this and this. And they all have these slanderous terms. Whew. Paul loves those people on the island of Crete that God loves. And he says they need the correction that Titus can bring. Wow. Do you see the friendships? And see, the path of righteousness is not just so you can sit on the couch and say, oh, I have a wonderful life. No, the path of righteousness is so you get up and you see that you have relationships in this world, relationships that ought to build up, that ought to strengthen, relationships that ought to help sharpen you as iron sharpens iron. They should not be relationships that tear you down, that ruin you, that introduce you, that tempt you, or that, that utter fear into your world. You know, as parents, Tracy and I are attentive to the friends that our kids have. If you were us, would you say, oh, just go out with anybody you want? It doesn't matter when you come home. Oh, yeah, that's fine. You can go to that place. You see, the more I talk like this, whether it sounds like I'm controlling or not, I hope you're hearing love. 
if you love somebody, you're going to come alongside of them and say, hey, this is not the best, but it's all in love. It's not in fear. It's not in, in manipulation. It's not in, in drudgery. And that's the way God designed the path of righteousness. I told you first is the friendship. The second is the frustrations. Now, let me explain some of these frustrations. And they're written in all three chapters. This is such a brief little book, a little epistle that Paul wrote to his, to his son in the faith. There are six particular frustrations that are addressed. These problems that are defined that you can see. Uh, it, it's kind of funny because you can see them in, in the 21st century too, not just the first century. People are just like we sang, I am a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. Let's look at some of these things. The one thing and then the others. The first one is in chapter 1. There was a spirit of disharmony. If you look at verses 1 through 16, you're going to end up seeing that when Paul is writing to Titus, he says there are some people in the church. He called them the, uh, from the circumcision. They're the religious crowd. They're the ones that knew all the religion. They knew all of the order that was supposed to be done. And he says they had a spirit of disharmony. They were legalistic. They were being pretty detailed and judgmental. You had to keep every iota of every little rule that was there. And if you didn't keep it, guess what happened? You were judged. You were condemned. You were put down. And the people in that church loved those people, didn't they? The apostasy of these men, the rebelliousness and deception, they were deceiving entire households with their rules, with their way of seeing things. Instead of it being a church where everybody had unity, they had a place where they were saying, oh, no, you can't go there because of this. And so the whole household would quit coming, and they wouldn't be in the church anymore. Maybe this was the church growth of the past. This is why they had multiple congregations in Crete. When you look at this text, it was sad. It wasn't only those folks, but they were, they were greedy. They were lazy. They were contradictory talk. And if you look at verse 16, that summarizes some painful stuff. They professed to know God, but they were denying God by what they did. Their works were not the path of righteousness. Did you hear that? It's not the path of righteousness. They were denying God. They were detestable, disobedient, unfit for the good works that God had set up. This is just too hard for me to swallow. I just wanted to turn the page and say, Paul, why did you write that? That's not the way the church is supposed to be because everybody in the church has professed faith in Christ. Everybody is walking with Jesus. Everybody's making progress. Everybody spends time on their knees confessing their sin, right? It's a wonderful place to be. This is the dichotomy that we have. Is it a wonderful place to be? And the answer is it's supposed to be. And that's why Paul told Titus, you need to put things in order. If you put things in order and you proclaim the gospel, chapter 2, if you look at the verse, he says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with the sound doctrine. Make sure you show people that you don't have to have these divisions. You don't have to have these complications. You don't have to have all these rules. He says, be faithful to teach what accords with the scriptures. Pretty cool. That was the first problem in the church, the first frustration. The second frustration was the generational division, chapter 2. They had generations. It's almost like when they walked into their churches, they saw gray hair or no hair, and then they saw brown hair, and they saw uh, cool hair. You know, the generations. You know what it's like. You all already identify yourself accordingly. 
I talk about four generations, and I don't mean that to divide us. I mean, mean that to talk about we're one journey of life. We, we go from birth to the grave, and during that one life, we are going to be at a phase where we don't even know about the future. That's stage one, generation one. The second generation I call is the one that dreams dreams and tries to make them happen. Anything you can do, anything you want to be able to say, anywhere you want to go, you dream those great dreams in, in the second generation. And usually this is where high school and college really kicks in, and they love it. And some of us that get past high school, we try to stay in that zone that we can still dream the dreams until finally generation three hits us, and we realize if we don't do something about it and stop dreaming, we won't do it. The bucket list is generation three. And generation four is when you stop keeping track of the bucket list and you just want to have a good day. When I talk about these generation gap, you can read it in chapter two. After he tells Paul, Paul tells Titus to to be a good preacher, to be faithful to the word. Then he starts talking about the older men, the older women, the younger women and the younger men. Wow. They had some divisions there. Why would he single them out? It's because one size didn't fit everybody because they were going through different stages in life. And those of you that are in some of these stages, you don't have to repent of being in those stages. You just need to make sure that you take the counsel that was designed for you. Some of you didn't like the counsel as we read it last week when it says older men are supposed to be sober. Okay, no more drunkenness. They're supposed to be dignified. They're supposed to be sound in the faith. They're supposed to have lots of love. And they're supposed to be steady. That sounds pretty good. Some of you hold canes to be able to keep steadiness. When you talk about the older women, they are to be reverent in their behavior. They're not supposed to use their mouths to slander anybody. They're not supposed to be given to a lot of wine, and they're not supposed to be drunk either. They're supposed to teach the things that are good and train up the younger ladies to be able to follow their example. It's pretty cool, Titus 2.2. The generations. But they weren't doing that, and that's why he had to tell them the younger ladies are supposed to have respect, and the younger men are supposed to be self-controlled. Wow. Why do you think they had to be told that they need self-control? Because they were out of control. Has things changed? Why do we have to train up a child in the way he should go? Proverbs 22, 6, because they're always wired to go in the wrong way. They're always wired to get up from the path where their soul was restored and go on the path of unrighteousness and not the path of righteousness. The third problem that you see in the book of Titus, the third frustration is the spirit of economic disparagement. If you look at verse 9, you'll be able to see it pretty quick. And that is that there was these people who were working for other people, their employers. And uh, whether you call them slaves and whether you call them masters, it's still you're working for somebody else. And he says, there's a problem here. When you're working for these people, you're not being submissive. You're not showing respect to the people that, are, that you're working for. In fact, you're showing disrespect, and you're rebellious, and you're not falling in line. You're not doing the things that would be beautiful for a Christian to be doing. Jerry Falwell, when he was still alive, he used to tell us when we were at Liberty University, he said, be a champion for Christ. And I I listened to that. And instead of telling us to isolate from the world and disappear, he said, infiltrate the world. And when you get into politics or when you get into media, when you get into into the uh, engineering, when you get into uh, banking, you be the best. You infiltrate by having righteousness adorn your character. And you will be a witness to the world wherever you go. That's where you're being a champion for, for, for Christ. Instead, there was a problem on Crete that many of the people who claimed to be Christians, they were bad employees. 
They didn't submit and they didn't have a lot. They were pilfering. They were not showing good faith and they, were adorning them. they weren't adorning the doctrines of grace very well. Now, that was the, the uh, third problem. The fourth problem that you find in chapter 3, which I read today, is the, there was a cultural disdain. There was a cultural disdain. The people there, if you look at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, remind them to be submissive to the authorities. So this is not just in the workplace where you're supposed to be a good worker. But now he says, when you're in your community, when you're in your culture, you need to have a different demeanor than than the people who are secular. And if you look at the text, he says, don't get frustrated at it, which many are. That's why they were rebellious. He says, you need to be obedient. You need to be ready to do good things. And you need to watch what you say. Don't speak evil. You need to avoid certain wasted quarreling. And you need to have a gentle spirit. And you need to have courtesy, even for people who disagree with you. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever been interviewed? I remember being interviewed once by uh, somebody on the, on the TV channel, and they're asking questions. Whew. They're always looking for you to say something wrong. Because if you say something wrong, it'll get, repeat, <laughs> it'll get repeated. If you say things that are gentle and nice, it often just that you'll notice that the commentators will try to move on to the next issue. They want something flashy. They want something to be controversial. And the Bible says that good Christians, they're not the ones that are just being rebels. There is a grace. There's a grace about them. The, four, excuse me, the fifth frustration is that there was a proclivity to distraction. And this one is found in verses 9 and 11, if you look at chapter 3. But avoid some things. He says there's a tendency for you guys to be distracted. You get involved in things that you shouldn't be involved in. You know, for for us, if you look at your own thing, what are the vices that grab your attention and take you away from what you were going to do? For some folks, it's the video games. For some folks, it's movie watching. So for some folks, it's now, you know, let's just, let's just uh, leave our world and find the most expensive Pokemon. There's some really good ones in our area. That's kind of a joke, you know. So when, you, when you think about the distractions, what captures your attention? You know, you're breaking the first commandment whenever something is more important to you than God. And when he comes in here and he says, avoid certain things, and he lists them for us. This is what the problem was in Crete that he was supposed to set in order. He says when people are given to foolish controversies, they're just caught up in controversy after controversy after controversy. They just can't get along. He says avoid these foolish things. Let it go. Let it go. He says avoid the genealogy issues. It doesn't matter who you're, what, what 23 genes you have. If you're from Europe, Africa, or if you're from, uh, from Asia... It doesn't matter. He says, don't get caught up in these genealogy issues and dissensions. Okay, whose side are you going to take? I'm going to dissent. I'm going to dissent. I'm going to have problems. And then he even goes on to clarify. He says, with quarrels about legalism, the law. Oh, we're going to make sure you keep the letter of the law. The whole point here is that as Christians, we're not supposed to be caught up by this legalism because that's what the Pharisees ended up doing. He says, when you look at this, he says, avoid quarrels about the law. The law is there to help you. It's supposed to be a a helper to get you through, to give order. It's not supposed to be something that is supposed to destroy and beat people up with. For they are all, as the text says, they're unprofitable and, what's the text say at the end of verse 9? It's worthless. It's twiddling your thumbs. It's not advancing the kingdom of God. It's a big waste. 
And that was one of the frustrations that he said, people have a proclivity to be distracted by all these things. You should rather avoid them. And then the, the sixth thing is found in chapter three, where he says, when individuals get consumed by their own determinations, they get so absorbed in their own agendas that this is the only thing that matters in life. They wake up in the morning and this is what they have to do. I don't know. Are you like that? This is what you live for, is to accomplish this particular task. He says, if you look at verse 10, as for that person who is caught up with their agenda, they're basically stirring division because they're not working in the system, after warning that person once and even a second time to be able to get off of that path of unrighteousness, then he asks you to do something that, I don't know, I'm, re- I'm a little rebellious. I don't want to tell you to do this. It doesn't seem very Christ-like, does it? Have nothing more to do with that person. You know, if if I was a deconstructionist, this is one of the verses I would erase. I have a really hard time as a pastor counseling you to have nothing more to do with that person. Those of you that have gone through divorce, if you get counseling from me, you know I will go to the nth degree to try to restore something that's busted and that's broken. No matter how bad it's been, there's a tendency from my soul is to say, don't give up because I am a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. You see what I'm saying? There's this tendency to say, oh, let's come together. Let's be restored. And then there comes a point in time where Paul says to Titus, when you're setting things in order, If people are not going to be redeemed, if they're not going to be restored, if they're not going to be able to sit on the couch together at the foot of the cross, then I guess there's a time for separation. And when that happens in divorce, nobody's happy. But that's what God says that needs to be done. And when you think about it in your relation, there's been a couple times in our life where we've submitted to this text within my family structure. And praise God... He used that silence, that quietness, that distance to actually be the catalyst where something renewed could happen. It's almost like a forest fire. After the ugliness of a fire comes through a forest, what happens? You know what happens? You all watch Bambi, I'm sure. What happens? There's new growth. The little things that, that all end up hatching because of the ugliness of the fire ends up starting to have a whole new forest and the trees are fresh and the little deer and all those kind of things, they love to be there. You see, and that's what God seems to be telling, I think. He says, Titus, you may not be there for long because I want you to come back because you're my friend. I'm going to send somebody to replace you. But after you set things in order, then come on back here. And if there's some people there that have to be in that quiet zone, that time out then they need to be there. And Lord willing, I believe God will restore them yet. Now, this, this is the cool thing, that that was the sixth one of the, uh, the issues that they were consumed with their own agenda. And the sad thing is, is that they're self-condemned. They're warped and they're sinful. They're just, they can't see past anything. It's really sad. And that's why if you turn to 3 John chapter 9, this just didn't happen in Crete. That's why I know it happens other places. It probably happens more than you know. He says in chapter 3, uh, 3 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I have something, I have written something to the church, but there's this one fellow in the church body named Diotrephes. Uh, in getting some of the counseling that I'm getting, 
one of my pastor or one of the counselors told me about Diotrephes. And I read up on him, and I'm like, wow, that sounds just like what Titus was dealing with. So let me read about him. Uh, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if, it, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not contend with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. In other words, he's not creating a beautiful place to worship. Verse 11, behold, or beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does what is good is from God. I mean, that's the righteous path. And whoever does evil has not seen God. They're leaning on their own understanding. Demetrius has received a good testimony, but Diotrephes, not. Now, I told you about these six different issues. Now, I want to just wrap up with the application. The formation applied. We dealt with the friendship and the frustrations. And now as he finishes up, I want to be able to highlight, this is not all bad news. Yes, we live in a fallen world and people are sinners, especially the one that you're looking at. None of us have been perfect. We need a savior. And so that's what we find in that beautiful passage in chapter three, verses four and five. But when the goodness of the loving kindness of our God and savior appeared, he saved us. It wasn't because we were on our own path of righteousness, but it was only because of his mercy. He washed us. In other words, we regenerate. Re is to, is again, and generate is to begin. He began us anew, and he did it with a washing by the Holy Spirit himself. God, the Spirit, did this stuff inside of you to regenerate you. He poured the Spirit out on you richly because of what Jesus did at the cross. You see, when you think about all of these things, it's fascinating how our spiritual life changes because Christ has has saved us, because we've been to the couch and we've had our souls restored, because in order to be restored here, when we're at peace, we're realizing that we're not doing anything to save ourselves. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that even seeks after God. If you're at this couch at the foot of the cross, it's because God made you go there. He made you to stop working and said, sit down, or more technically, lay down. And he said, be still, Psalm 46. He says, the still waters, I'm at peace. And when you're in that place and you realize there's nothing in my hands I bring, only to his cross I cling. It's not by works of righteousness which I have done, but according to his mercy he saves me. When you get this, The Holy Spirit is filling your life. Your cup is full and overflows. Goodness and mercy surely is going to spill out while you're on the path of righteousness. Do you see it? Is this describing you? Titus got some specific indications. Let me read those texts for you as we wrap up. In Titus chapter 2, Titus, excuse me, Titus chapter 3, first thing he says, I want to remind us of what we are. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, he says, I want you uh, to understand the spiritual formation. Don't deceive yourself into thinking you're something better. Don't be like Diotrephes. Don't be like the person that gets removed and gets separated and ostracized. He says in in chapter uh, 3, he says, we were there. That's us. That's describing me too. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. We were addicted to stuff, including our own pleasures. We wasted our days away, and we didn't like people. 
Today we would call that, uh, what, that you have, you have a hate crimes? You put people in categories? Or what, the, the newest thing is that we're really racist and stuff like this, even though we're all from the human race? When you think through this, wow. He says, I want you to understand spiritual formation. You're not any different from that other person. Secondly, he reminds us of what he did. I already told you about the cross when he restored our souls. While we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, Christ came and died for us. Do you see that in order for us to be transformed, God had to be the initiator? We talk about that as sovereignty of God. We believe that in divine election, God chooses you and God actually said, I'll come and pay your price, particular redemption. He loves you that much. When the goodness and kindness of our loving Savior finally appeared on your behalf, he saved us. Now, then you also find us that he reminds us that once he saved us, there is more to your life than sitting on that couch remembering that. He said, get up and go. And when you get this piety, this life of righteousness, let me just tell you three or four things right quick. Number one is it should be personal piety. You don't have to look at anybody else. Just look in the mirror. Look in your own soul, which is what you're supposed to do at communion. Search yourself. Examine yourself. Don't be examining everybody else. Look at your own soul. Pull the beam out of your own eye. When he says this, he tells Timothy to do it in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model. Look at your own life. All of us need to start there. Start looking at your own life. Are you becoming a follower of Christ as you've taken in your membership vow number four? Are you following Jesus? Secondly, corporate piety. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, he talks about here, for the grace of God has appeared, and it brings salvation to all people. And when he talks about, oh yeah, in chapter 2, when they were dealing with some frustrations, he didn't leave us there. He mentioned the salvation, and he says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present time. Plural. We're supposed to teach. We're supposed to teach. Thirdly, contagious piety. If you look at chapter three, verse thir- uh, chapter two, verse thirteen, you're going to find out in ver- excuse me, verse fourteen, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who would be zealous for good works. You see, zealous for good works means that instead of saying you have to go down this path, you want to go down this path, and you're eager to go down this path. Are you eager to do what God wants you to do? Or is somebody sticking a gun in your back and say, if you don't do this, we're going to get you? Or we're going to say, oh, you're not Christian enough. Declare these things, verse 15, exhort and rebuke with all authority. This needs to be taught and it needs to be enjoyed. And the last one is divine piety realized is that, wow, when I look at the list, when I look at what Jesus did, when the righteousness of Christ appeared, I see the contrast with the godliness in verse 4 of chapter, uh, of chapter 3. I'll wrap up with this. He says, when the godliness and loving kindness of God comes, it attacks the earthly ways of doing things in the previous verse. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, all those things. Listen to the opposite. If you just take the list, instead of being foolish, if you're in the path of righteousness, you'll be wise. Instead of being disobedient, you'll be submitting to the authorities that are there, whether it be in civil or whether it be ecclesiastical or whether it be domestic in the home. 
Instead of being led astray, you will be one that follows the good shepherd as he leads you in the path of righteousness. Instead of being a slave to addictions, you will experience what Paul said in in Galatians 2, freedom in Christ. You don't have to take those drugs anymore. You don't have to go and to that frequent that place anymore. You don't have to click the button on your computer anymore. Instead of wasting your life away, wishing you had something that somebody else has, you will redeem the time, as Ephesians chapter 5 says. Yes, the days are evil, but the time that you have, the little bit of time you have, you're going to love Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor too, like you would love yourself. And the last thing there, it talks about the hatred. Wow. Instead of hating people and being hated by people, the path of righteousness talks about love, loving one another. That's how they were first known as Christians. They were Christ followers, but they were known for their love up in Antioch. That is the same admonition that he gives. Be careful, old brothers and sisters, verse 8 at the end, to devote yourselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. Never think that your good works will save you. But if you've been saved, then you've been saved to do them. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be ministry partners. This whole month, this missions month, has been calling all of us to be missionaries, to join the mission that you have already called us to embark on, which is to go into all the world and make disciples, to see that they're baptized as they come to faith in Christ Jesus and their households. Oh Lord, we are so excited that this kingdom mentality, this motif that is before us is still ours because Jesus, you're still king. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are. Oh, Lord, I pray that we will be found faithful, diligent, not only putting things in order, if that's our gift mix, but that we would go forth from this place with an eagerness to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Yes, we know that we're sinners, but we have a Savior. And when that goodness of God appears, oh, the beauty, oh, the beauty follows. Goodness and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.